Future Proof Extra from News Talk. Now, the common sense approach to tackling cancer is to cut it out wherever you find it. But what if we thought about it a little bit differently and treated cancer like we treat chronic disease? Dr. Bob A. Gatenby is chairman of the Department of Radiology at H. Lee Moffat Cancer Centre in Florida and co-director of the Cancer Biology and Evolution Program. He joins me now. Bob, welcome to the program. Um, before we kind of get into everything, perhaps you might just uh, explain to me how a cancer operates in the body. So uh, the cancer is, is almost, um, it's a, these are rogue cells. Ordinarily, all the cells in our body are under the control of our tissue. So they uh, proliferate and they die and they act and they move all based on the instructions. So they're completely under control of the tissue and that's how the multicellular organism works. The cancer cells escape the control uh, of the tissue somehow and that could be either because of things that develop in the cancer cell, it could be because things develop in the tissue or some combination of those things. But because of that, they begin to evolve because their proliferation and death is entirely dependent on their own uh, properties. So they're our cells, but they have basically developed a new species. And so in many ways, it becomes an almost infestation. Right. So as I said in, in the beginning, the, the way we've sort of approached tackling cancer has been very commonsensical. We find the cancer we cut it out or we destroy it with toxicity using things that are very dangerous, like radiation from chemotherapy, for example. If you have localized tumor, uh, you know, so you have a, a tumor in your breast or the lung or, or someplace like that, and that's the only tumor in your body, that's a perfectly fine, in fact, it's really the best approach. To cut it out, you don't have to worry about it anymore. The problem, and, and why people die from cancer, is that the cancer begins to spread from that primary tumor to other sites in the body. And because of that, because it's spread throughout the body, you don't have that option anymore of cutting it out. You, you just can't remove everything. In that setting, you have to start using what's called systemic therapy, meaning that you have to begin giving chemotherapy or something that goes throughout the body. Um, the drugs also to treat these cancers can sometimes be so toxic as to kill the person they're trying to cure. Yes. Yeah. It's. It's interesting to me that um, a 5% mortality from your therapy is considered acceptable. Uh, and, and so, yes, people die from the, from the therapy. And it's a very, it's, it's an edge. I mean, you, you, you want to kill the cancer cells. You're applying enormous uh, evolutionary force. But the problem is that like the uh, extinction of the dinosaurs, you know, by this huge uh, meteor impact, you know, you can extinct the dinosaurs, but you're also going to kill about a third of the uh, mammal population and, and, and so forth. It's just indiscriminate. And so the problem is that if there are cancer cells that are more resistant to the chemotherapy than the normal cells are, you, they, they, they are going to survive because we can't give more therapy than will kill the person. So talk to us how the diamondback moth may have inspired a different approach to looking at these really difficult to cure cancers. Sure, the, the diamondback moth is a, an interesting story because it's been well documented. It was actually found in Illinois in the United States uh, in the 1850s. 
we, we as as usual we blame Europe for for them, but but no one really knows where they came from. But they were just very isolated, and so over from from that time till now, 160 70 years, this moth has been treated with every pesticide ever developed. Every human pesticide has been thrown at it. And what, what's happened is, is it's spread from its local uh, area in Illinois. It's now throughout the United States. It's actually throughout North America and it's found in Europe and Asia and Australia. So it, it has simply you know, thumbed its nose at these therapies. It has developed resistance to every one of them uh, to the point that he, 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 a few years ago, it was resistant to every known pesticide. Um, <laughs> now the pesticides was kill them. Cancer therapy is also supposed to kill and does kill the cancer cells. But when you start killing them, you're also applying evolutionary pressure for them to develop resistance. Explain and that for me. So the, the, the cells are gonna die, uh, but the, the, the cancer cells are heterogeneous. Uh, meaning that it's not just one cancer cell that's in your body. It's actually multiple different types of cancer cells, um, almost like species. And so whenever you apply chemotherapy, and again, we, we're talking about now populations of 10 billion, you know, 100 billion more cancer cells than there are humans on Earth, almost inevitably, uh, there are cancer cells that are present that are resistant to the, uh, to the chemotherapy, just as in the diamondback moth, in these huge populations, there's always a few, and, and frequently more than a few, that are resistant. And it, it sounds to me like Darwin's theory of evolution, that some cancer cells that probably wouldn't have been dominant are, you know, experience a wipeout of their most competitive neighbors. And as a result, they get to enjoy the spoils after, after that chemotherapy, and then they thrive, and then you've got another problem to have to solve. You're right. That's exactly the problem, um, and that that's well known in um, in evolutionary biology. It's called competitive release, and and that's exactly what happens in pesticides. Uh, it, it can happen in uh, widespread use of antibiotics. I mean, it, it those that are resistant survive. You've killed all of their competitors with your therapy, and so they basically have everything to themselves. Now they're only competing with each other. And of course, cancer cells have the whole human genome hmm. to select from, you know, for strategies. And so they can deploy any number of, of molecular machinery to become resistant. Tell us then about your approach. And we, I, I, we should stress before we go into this, that we we're talking about early ideas in, in terms of cancer treatment. This is not in any way a tried and tested technique. But uh, the reason we're speaking to, to Bob Gatenby is because the the idea of this approach to cancer seems quite radical. Tell us about the Lotka-Volterra equations and, and how they got you thinking about treating cancer more like a chronic disease rather than trying to eradicate it from the body. So the Lotka-Volterra equations were developed by two mathematicians uh, separately, and they are commonly used to describe the competition of many uh, species in, a, in an environment. Uh, the links and hair combination is is uh, kind of a famous application of this, and this is now a predator and prey. But many times it's just competing populations. So uh, in the U.S., for example, you might have uh, moose and elk, two large uh, similar kind of 
animals that compete with each other in forests. And, um, and so it, it tells you about fitness, about how cells, the more well adapted they are to the environment, the fitter they are, and the more they will generally proliferate in competition with other uh, you know, similar species. And so it's a way of quantifying uh, what we can see and the quantification then allows you to, to begin to experiment with theoretical ways of changing the environment. And then you can run those simulations and you can, you can begin then to predict what will happen. So you're, in, you're talking essentially about um, it's sort of managing cancers rather than destroying them, sort of keeping them at low levels um, so that they don't go out of control the, the, a lot of, so the competitive release we, we, we talked about, if you give massive doses of drug, which is how it's done standardly, uh, maximum tolerated dose is the standard way to give chemotherapy. And, and more than that, it's, it's maximum tolerated dose until progression. So you simply give the same thing over and over and over again un, until the tumor progresses through it. Wow. The problem with that is that by giving large doses of chemotherapy, you essentially kill all the cells that are uh, sensitive to the therapy, leaving behind the ones that are resistant. And these resistant cells now have no competitors because you've killed them all. And so they can begin to grow unopposed. And so oddly enough, although this makes, it, it, it sort of intuitively makes sense that you wanna kill as many cancer cells as possible for the benefit of the patient, in fact, from an evolutionary point of view, it, it's, it's ill-advised because it actually tends to accelerate the development of, uh, of resistance and progression. And so uh, like you, was done in the Diamondback moth, you can dump pesticides on them and you can see that population go way down, but what's left behind is resistant. And then you can keep dumping the pesticide all you want. Those guys are resistant. They're just gonna proliferate and what you're doing is futile. What's interesting is that people that do pesticides learned this uh, 60 years ago. And so 60 years ago, there was a change in strategy where instead of using high dose pesticides, there were a number of ways that were developed to actually limit the amount of pesticide that's given. And what you want to do then is to reduce the pest population so that it doesn't do too much damage to your crop at the same time, you don't want to give lots of pesticide. You don't want to try to reduce that population to zero because all you do is create a resistant population that you can't control anymore with your pesticide. Hmm. So tell me about this a study of uh, 11 cancer patients that you did. So we've, we now actually have 18 uh, patients on this trial, uh, and uh, we've used metastatic prostate cancer. We, we focus on that group because we can measure their, the tumor burden using a, a blood test. And what we do is really just treat these patients with the same dose of therapy, but only half the time, in fact, a little less than half the time. So they, we give therapy until the, uh, this blood marker gets to about half of what it was before therapy. We then stop treatment. And because we're not giving the drug, we're not killing the cells that are uh, sensitive and they can grow and they can suppress the growth of the cells that are resistant. So at the end of this, uh, it, although the tumor returns, we can still treat it with the same drug. And so what does that do to the symptoms? Because if, if you are 
if, if you're just keeping it suppressed in that way, um, does that eradicate any symptoms and does it s slow or stop the progression of, of the cancer? So the goal is to reduce it to the point where it's not symptomatic. Uh, in this setting, the drugs that are used can, can cause terrible side effects, particularly not, not so much the one we've used, but the androgen deprivation therapy, which, is, which actually turns off all the testosterone in the body. Wow. Men typically hate that because it, it, it makes them uh, feminized. They, they actually get osteoporosis and they get fractures. And, and women will not be surprised to know that men don't think well uh, in the absence of testosterone. So they have cognitive functions. If we can treat them less than half the time turn it, by turning off the testosterone, uh, men are a great deal happier. Um, and it's also a lot less expensive yeah. But we do treat to the point where we, we want to make sure that the men are not symptomatic from their tumor. What we have found is that uh, in, in the 18 patients, 11 are still on therapy. So, so we don't know yet uh, what the median time to progression is, but it's at least 34 months, which is almost threefold larger, uh, uh, greater than standard met maximum tolerated dose therapy and they are getting about 40% of the drug that they would have received otherwise. So they're getting so, less drug, uh, less drugs, and the tumor is progressing much more slowly. Yes. But um, sure. I, I suppose what's really important is to stress that we're talking about uh, an 18-person trial. Um, much bigger studies would need to be done to sort of see whether or not this is a manageable approach. But I presume it's also a lot more expensive because of the sort of monitoring that you need to do, or, or is it uh, the same sort of cost? No, actually, the cost is is significantly lower uh, for the men that have, because they remain on this therapy for years, whereas they would have gone on to other drugs, which are generally more expensive and more toxic. Well, Bob A. Gatenby, uh, co-director of the Cancer Biology and Evolution Program at uh, H. Lee Moffitt Cancer Center, thank you so much for joining us. Thank you for having me. So the other 167 hours of the week, I uh, work with people in 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 communications. And uh, sometimes we, we're sort of stuck with how to communicate something in a new way. And uh, when you do sort of innovation courses, one of the things they teach you is to sort of kill your darlings and basically say, here's the solution you use all the time. Imagine that solution wasn't there. Now what are you going to do? And it seems like this is the sort of solution that falls out of that sort of thinking, basically saying, well, the, the obvious thing is to kill all the cancer. But actually, what if we couldn't do that? What if we don't kill all the cancer? This is a really interesting idea that came out of it. Can't wait to see what the, the development of this therapy will be and whether or not it leads to something truly groundbreaking. <laughs> <laughs> 